when they went back for his body later, it was gone and missing for 73 years. So the mystery was, what happened there? You're listening to Buddhism in Details. I'm Gwendolyn Dolsky. And I'm Rudy Sallow. And this is the podcast where we learn what we didn't know we didn't know in the spirit of Socrates. And our guest today is a fellow Cal Poly Pomona professor. He's in the engineering department. We co-teach ethical considerations in technology, but we are talking about his book that doesn't have to do with engineering. It's an incredible story of his search for his uncle who was missing from World War II. And he was inspired when he watched the movie Saving Private Ryan. We bring that up in the episode. And he started thinking about, hey, you know what? I have an uncle who was missing. And this whole journey is really extraordinary. And one of the things I love about this episode is that it highlights the soldier's family, that we're not just talking about numbers when we're talking about war. We're talking about the implications that it has for an entire family and to really humanize what it means to be a soldier. Loved the episode. Yeah, I'd say that he's a nephew, right? We often think, maybe we think about a soldier's immediate family, but the reality is that every person's life affects many generations. And he helped find his uncle. And and on this episode, we explain the story about the process of what it's like to find a missing body from a war overseas. And he went through that meticulous process, that painful process, but he was ultimately successful. And it's described in his book, some closure and how that's been able to, you know, help him and his family heal going forward. And and we talk a lot about healing on this episode as well. And that was one of the things that I got from this episode is learning how to deal with things that are outside of your control, what are the steps in the process. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, this is one of those episodes where conversation can be deep and kind of heavy and thought provoking about what it would be really like to go through the process of searching for a missing soldier. It was making me think, I come from a military family. My father was in Vietnam. He was drafted. His father was in World War II and my mother's father was in World War I. And as I was listening to Phil, I was just thinking what a treasure this is to have found the dog tags, to have found the letters that his uncle had written while he was in war, that this is really a kind of conversation that I would have loved to have with my family members. So I'm really grateful that Phil took the time to come on the show and talk about this process. Yeah. And if this is one of those episodes that just maybe that will remind you of, oh boy, I better get these stories out and I better get them on tape so I can hand them down to my children and their children. And it's just, it's a good reminder. It's a reminder to record these impactful, important stories. I agree. Okay. Let's talk about finding Uncle Dave. Okay, there's a couple of things that I'm thinking of when I'm examining your book. The first thing is that, of course, for our listeners, Phil, you and I know each other through Cal Poly Pomona. You're an engineering professor. And I assumed that when you told me you wrote a book, in my mind, I was thinking this is going to be engineering. So it was a lovely surprise to get this book called Letters from Uncle Dave, The 73-Year Journey to Find a Missing in Action World War II Paratrooper. And I'm blown away, Phil, for a couple of reasons. It's a beautiful work. I really want to know about your process of working on this. The other thing that I think hit me, if I can tie it a little bit to our ethics, is that we talk about the philosopher Immanuel Kant. And something that Immanuel Kant says is that a person must always be treated as an end in himself, never a means only. And I feel like with this work that you've done, you've accomplished that because instead of talking about soldiers as though they are part of the military equipment, you have put a face, a history, a family, values, 
to the individual who had this courage and served in World War II, you put a face to it, not just, not just numbers. And I think that that is so needed when we talk about these big events like World War II. So thank you for that. It's just a beautiful work and a beautiful project. Well, thank you. I, I, you said in the book that you were inspired to start working on this after watching Saving Private Ryan. So can we start there? I want to know how were you, did it happen in the middle of watching the film or was it a week after watching the film? So um, what was your experience of watching the film? Did you see it in the theaters? Yeah, I, I think I saw it in the theater. I don't know if it was during the movie or just after, but it hit me. Well, my uncle was a paratrooper in Europe in World War II. He was missing. Not quite the same scenario as Private Ryan, but I mean, I grew up knowing I had an uncle who was a paratrooper in World War II. He never came home. They didn't know what happened to him. Nobody would talk about it. I explained that in the book. You know, whenever I asked a question, I'd get a snippet of an answer. I said, well, we have the internet now, you know, and we have search engines. And my uncle was a paratrooper. He had three brothers in World War II, like Private Ryan did. They all came home. And then there were some other parallels too. Uh, There was a Jewish character in Private Ryan. My uncle was Jewish. Just so many things that hit me. And I said, well, I'm just going to, in my spare time, I'm going to go ahead and search around, see what I could find. The only thing I knew, because my dad had this memorized, my uncle was in the 82nd Airborne 504 Parachute Infantry Regiment, H Company, and I had no artifacts about my uncle at all. Not a thing. I didn't have a photo of him, but I just said, I'll start with surfing around looking for 504, 82nd Airborne and stuff. I just started mentioning that to my relatives as I tried to learn more. And my uncle, who was the middle child of 11 children, you know, I had a lot of cousins. They said, well, we've got some things. We've got letters, photo albums, uh, scrapbooks. One cousin had whatever medals and stuff they sent home. And so they said, oh, if you're going to get into it. So they started sending me all this stuff. And I started learning more, but I still didn't know where he died or how he died. I um, surfed around. I found a website on the 504. I mean, military units all seem to have some kind of website. This is 1999, 98. About the third time I went there, there was a little link on the side. It said casualty list. So I said, oh, okay. I don't know how I missed it before. Maybe it wasn't there. So I scrolled down through the R's and there was Staff Sergeant David Rosencrantz. Missing in action, 28 September 1944 in the Netherlands, and that his name is on the wall of the missing at the Netherlands American Cemetery, which really, Gwen, wasn't very far from where you were in Belgium. So I had something now. I had a place and a date, and I started researching where was his unit. That didn't help me a whole lot, because for all I know, when did he go missing could have been different than when they recorded the date or something, you know, who knows. So I emailed the webmaster and I said, you know anybody that might know my uncle? I mean, that's kind of a shot in the dark, right? He sent me 10 email addresses and said, these are email addresses of people that have inquired of me. You can have them all. They could be relatives, researchers, who knows? So I sent a message to those 10. Three weeks later, one of them came back and said, how did you find me? I've been looking for a relative of your uncle's for five years. Wow. And he said, my father served with your uncle and they were best friends. 
And we have the name and phone number of a veteran who is still alive, who was an eyewitness to what happened to your uncle. Oh, my goodness. I was blown away. So I called. I talked to this guy. His name was Dave Thomas. His father, Fred Thomas, was still alive. I talked to him. And the reason that he wasn't around when my uncle died was because he had come home because of wounds before that. So he wasn't still fighting. I called this guy. He lived in Louisiana, Sergeant Finkbeiner. He said, oh, I'm surprised nobody ever told you what happened. Well, we didn't have technology in the 40s, right? <laughs> and he told me what happened, that my uncle, had, they were on patrol in the Netherlands. They got surrounded in a counterattack by the Germans. They were overwhelmed. They were retreating. And my uncle was killed. When they went back for his body later, it was gone and missing for 73 years. So the mystery was what happened there. So now I knew what happened to my uncle. Now that's important because when I was doing research for the book, studying the grief aspect of it for the family, I found out that really what was going on there, we can call it grief, but they have a different name for it professionally. In this case, it's called ambiguous loss. Whoa, what's that? Well, that's different than regular kind of grief because with ambiguous loss, that's when somebody is missing, like kidnapped, mm -hmm. they've disappeared, they're missing in action, or it could even be dementia. They're missing, you know, their mind. So you're not really in touch with them in a real way. The difference is if they're missing, like kidnapped or disappeared or missing in action, you don't have closure. Are they still alive? Are they suffering? Are they being tortured? What are they doing now? And you can't shake it. And it's nothing you did. There's nothing you could have done to prevent it. It's not like going to a grief meeting. It's a different side of treatment because everybody's going through it. The whole family's going through it. But anyway, I you know, learned that kind of thing, realized that's what my family went through. <laughs> and I didn't know that at the time. I was a kid in the 50s. I was born in 49. I made a website about my uncle. A Dutchman saw it. He emailed me and said, Phil, give me your phone number. And I did. This Dutchman called me. We talked on the phone for three hours. Mm -hmm. He had been looking for my uncle for 15 years. The whole book took oh, off from goodness. there. So then it took 20 years of learning more about my uncle. And I went over to the Netherlands four times, visited the place where he was killed. The Dutchman I was telling you about, he showed me around. We've become good friends. I found another researcher that was involved too. But it was in 2018 when they found his remains. As the result of that young man that I mentioned, uh, his name is Ben Overhand. 35 years, and he figured out where my uncle was, and we brought him home. So it was 20 years that oh I was working goodness. on this. Well, what was that like when you went to the Netherlands for the first time, and you realized you were in the place where your uncle was killed? It was very emotional. I can tell you some of the emotional times during this whole thing, standing in the spot where he was killed, uh, which was almost intact. It's not that way now. If we went to the spot where he was killed now, there's a, a microbrewery. Oh. <laughs> But anyway, I mean, I, maybe yeah. your uncle would have liked that. I mean, I don't well, know. I, I was, maybe something. I'd yeah, prefer I, a winery, but yeah, yeah I, of course. I wrote to the brewery owner and he never responded. I was going to suggest some rosy beer or something like that. Oh, that's a great idea. You got to yeah. stay on top of that. That's I'm going to really try. Yeah. And in fact, the cover Send him a of the, copy of the book, Send the him a cover copy of the book, that picture that was taken the day before he was killed, sitting in front of a barn about 50, 60 feet from where he was eventually killed. And that spot where he's sitting is where the courtyard is for the, the outdoor seating for the brewery is now. That was emotional. 
Uh, the other emotional thing was in 2012, I get a notification from the Defense POW MIA office, DPMO, who I've been working with. They're the ones that look for MIAs. They said, oh, we found your uncle's dog tags. I said, what? <laughs> and they sent them to me. They had been found on the ground at the farm near where he was killed. They were turned in to the local magistrate. They called the army. The army came and investigated. Then after they did their report, they lost the dog tags, filed, misfiled them until 2012. And so I got them back. So that was the next very emotional moment when I opened that envelope and I'm holding my uncle's dog tags in my hand. They still have blood stains on them. I really? mean, that's, that's what my son and I believe. And I'm thinking, these are the dog tags that he wore from his first day in the army, all the way through all those battles he was in. He was in lots of battles. He saw many, many famous battles, lots of combat, gnarly, heavy combat. And uh, then, you know, they got found and misfiled <laughs> and then sent to me. And I'm holding in my hand, what, 68 years, whatever later it was, that really got to me. Yeah. And what I've noticed is when I've handed these to other people, especially to children who want to hold them, it's emotional for them too. You know, touching something like that was emotional. And then the next emotional moment, really emotional moment was when they were bringing his casket off of the airplane at LAX with the flag draped over it, people up in the, or looking out the windows of the plane with their cameras, taking pictures. What I found out is they won't let people deplane until the remains are off. So touching his casket was emotional. I mean, I'd never met him personally, but my wife and I were both in tears. Yeah. And then uh, also we went in 2019 back to the Netherlands. That was our fourth trip to there. And they have a ceremony where if a person's name is on the wall of the missing, and there's thousands of names on that wall in the Netherlands, a lot of people don't realize how many of our soldiers died in the Netherlands. Well, all over. When they're found, they put a medallion next to the name on the wall and they call it a rosette. And so I got to go and participate in the rosette ceremony and put the medallion up on the wall. And that was another emotional point of closure for me. His funeral at Riverside, Riverside National Cemetery was also emotional, but I was kind of so involved with that. It was, you know, more about thinking, is it going well? But it was emotional. They, you know, anytime they play, you know, sometimes they play taps, sometimes they play another song. That's emotional. And then we had a, um, a rabbi there who participated in the graveside ceremony. So the other <laughs> emotional moment was when I got my proof copy of the book in the mail. <laughs> yes, yes. I wanted to know, what was it like for the family members who did know Uncle Dave? There's still a few of them around. I have four cousins that are in their mid-80s. One of them passed away last week, and they knew Uncle Dave. And uh, one of them remembers a lot about him. They were all really behind me in what I was doing here. I found out what happened to my uncle back in 99, he still had five siblings alive. That was a mixture of emotions. Two of my uncles, when I told them what, you know, what happened. So now you could, you could have closure on, was he a POW? Was he tortured? Did he suffer? You know, I could say, no, he died instantly, <laughs> at least. Mm -hmm. Two of them had no emotions. It was like they were almost numb. My father, I think he was, I didn't know this, but I think my father was still grieving the whole time until he died. 
he was still grieving, but he never shared that. My sisters and I figured that out when we got together and we pieced it together, things he had said over the years. My aunt, I called her and told her what happened. I've met a couple of veterans, knew him, and I have the phone number for one of them who would love to talk to you. And she said, no, 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 I couldn't do that. I can't handle that. Then about an hour later, she calls me and she says, can I have that phone number? So she called this guy. He's the sweetest person you'd ever want to meet. He was one of my uncle's best friends. He was full-blooded Mohawk Indian. And my uncle was Jewish. They used to stand in the back whenever there was a religious service, which was mostly for Protestants. And they'd stand in the back and look at each other and say, we're sticking together. <laughs> and, uh, but anyway, she called this guy. And then a couple of hours later, she called me back. She was crying. And she was saying, oh, that was so great. Because she had those same ambiguous loss issues. What was he like? What did he go through? All that stuff. And he was able to share experiences they had together somewhere in the book. And they stayed in touch. They exchanged Christmas cards. That was very helpful for my aunt. I would say it changed our family a lot. Because if my uncle had a lived, gotten through the war, and assuming he didn't have some major PTSD, you know, let's say he would have married, he would have had kids. I'm sure that him being the kind of the glue of the family, he was the gregarious one. He was the one that knew everybody, loved everybody. He, he was the one my grandmother, apple of her eye, so to speak. Our family would have been different. You know, there were, probably would have been reunions and stuff that we never had. You said it right at the beginning, Gwen, when you said studying one person. I actually mentioned that in the book, thanks to a couple of my beta readers. You can study World War II by saying, what happened to 400,000 people that died as a statistic? Or you could look at one person in depth and multiply that by 400,000. That's a little more of an impact. And so I hope, I want to use the book to help high school students, for example, that age group, get a better appreciation for World War II and the impact of not just World War II, but every war. I mean, we're seeing the same things from Korean War veterans, Vietnam veterans, and now veterans of the Middle Eastern wars. Mm -hmm. We're seeing it over again. I'm wondering if, since you're a parent yourself, was going through this process of finding Uncle Dave giving you any kind of insight into your own, uh, your grandparents? Because as a father yeah. yourself, so as you're saying, you were thinking this about your grandfather, right? Yeah, wait, did I, did I mix up my family line? Wait, <laughs> when you're saying, wait, no, your, your father. My father. Okay. And then yeah. maybe even your grandparents. So I guess I'm just wondering if the fact that you yourself are a father, mm -hmm. did that play any role in when you were starting to think about the emotional impact that that must have been like for your grandparents? Yes. When I look back, so from in the 50s, I grew up and my grandmother, well, I saw her a lot from baby till 10 because I lived nearby her. And she had already lost, before she lost my Uncle David, she had lost her two youngest daughters. Hmm. One died from the pandemic in 1918 as a little girl. And the other died when she was 24 in 1942, hit by a car. And so my grandmother was grieving. And then to have four sons in the war and one of them killed, another uncle was in such, lots of combat in South Pacific and came home with PTSD. So having kids of my own, four and uh, one with down syndrome you know i've thought a lot about what if things were different what if we lost one and stuff and yeah i could identify with a lot of that i'd already been doing occasionally at church i would do study on grief and then i did a study when i was researching the book i did an online course 
called Reconciliation with War. A woman wrote a book about her father who was in World War II. He came home. He had PTSD. He was mentally abusive, not physically abusive, but mentally abusive. And it took 40 years for the family to try and get to some normal point. It opened my eyes to this whole issue in a lot more depth. So that's why it's such a big part of the book. I usually share that whenever I'm speaking about the book. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Good is in the details has talked about maternity. We support moms. So new moms to be or nursing moms or friends and family members, check out Kindred Bravely. Kindred Bravely is a premium maternity and nursing brand that makes it easy for mothers to find functional, stylish, and comfortable clothing. Since launching in 2015, Kindred Bravely has grown into a sisterhood of moms who help each other transition from the bump to the breast and beyond. Kindred Bravely is here for moms no matter where they are in their motherhood journey. Their mission is a comfortable bra in every nursing mother's wardrobe. I mean, that's a must-have. They have premium, super soft fabrics, including bamboo and organic cotton. They're supportive, wire-free bras for a variety of sizes, including special busty sizing for E through I cups. They have bras for nursing, pumping, or both at the same time. They have sports bras, sleep and comfort bras, versatile everyday bras, and more. They have ultra-comfortable bras, undies, sleepwear, loungewear, and activewear. They have bump-friendly tops and bottoms. They have nursing-friendly dresses, tanks, and tees. Ooh, those are essential. They have beautiful, flattering labor and delivery gowns. No more itchy hospital gowns. Another must-have. Save 20% on your purchase when you use discount code DETAILS20 on kindredbravely.com. And I'll link that in the show notes. And back to the show. If I may, because you do put here in your acknowledgement about... Thank you to God for this inspiration. Yeah. And as you're talking about grief and loss, mm-hmm. and I just would love to know, as an active person in your church, as a Christian, how has this helped? What is your point of view? Was your faith ever shaken? I'm, I'm just, I'm curious. You don't have to answer that. No, yeah. we'll, okay. we'll look for lightning outside. Right. <laughs> I know. You answer no. in the affirmative, but I always find it extraordinary. People who have gone through extreme grief and loss and their faith remains intact. So I'm wondering, has there been waves of your faith or has it made you think more about the nature of faith? What's well, made me think a lot I'd say my faith is stronger. I think that some of the experience I've had helped prepare me for other experiences, to be honest. For example, when our daughter was born with Down syndrome, which we were surprised at, we didn't expect it. We, you know, the tests we had had, we didn't do an amniocentesis, but we did other tests. We had no suspicion. There was grief there from the standpoint of the loss of normalcy, your expectations of having a child that's gonna grow up and be normal and, and have grand proofs, grandchildren, et cetera. You have that grief, but here's also what happened. This was the bigger factor for us. Our daughter was healthy physically, but what got us the worst was the fear of the unknown. So what does this do to our life? What about the rest of the family? I'm thinking things like, will I be able to send my kids to college? I was in a degree program at the time. I was in the middle of a master's. Well, I have to quit school. That fear of the unknown was terrible. And finally, my wife and I looked at each other and we said, we can't live like this. And so, you know, we have to just count on faith. (laughs) And we said, we have to live one day at a time. We almost put ourselves in a 12-step program. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We said, okay, we're just going to look for daily victories 
you know, getting through the day. And if we see a little piece of progress with our daughter, we'll celebrate it. And that made a huge difference. What I, I was understanding the grief part because of what I'd been through before. So it helped me there. You always wonder why would bad things happen to good people, all that. I think, you know, from a theological point of view, when you finally realize that Christians suffer, it's a given. <laughs> That's the short-term part of it. The long-term, we win. You have to keep reminding yourself. You have to try to keep from getting into the dumps. It doesn't mean that you don't grieve. You just have to get through it and you support each other the best you can and, and let God comfort you when he can't, you know, stuff like that. Uh, the, I'll tell you the other big thing I learned, and this was also from having my daughter, everybody grieves differently and everybody goes through different family experiences. Uh, there's no one size fits all. And I've been so tolerant of that now. You know, when I see somebody grieving in a way that I might think somebody might think is weird or odd or unhealthy, I'm a lot more tolerant about that. You know, so much to unpack here. Um, I mean, you've, you've lived an extremely extraordinary life, Phil, and there's so many lessons for me to learn as well as anybody that's listening to it. And you've accomplished so much and faced so much. Something that I've been kind of obsessed with and trying to work on myself. I mean, I'd love your thoughts on this, actually, just from what you just talked about. Uh, it sounds like what you've come to face is and, and accept that we have no control over things, right? There's, I mean, literally, literally, the only thing that, you know, we have control over is our reactions to things that the randomness of life, uh, if you will. I'm somebody who, who yeah, I'm, I'm a straight up control freak. I'm, I'm, I'm always trying to control everything because uh, I, I want things to go smoothly. I want things to go a certain way. And so I've personally had to go through my own suffering or my own self-reflection to give up control. What advice would you give to somebody like me about that from the life lessons that you've learned? Well, first of all, I can identify with what you just said, because I'm a problem solver. That's what I tell myself. I'm a problem solver. You know, the engineering side of me, and especially industrial engineering, I like to jump in and say, oh, here's what we should do. And I find out that that isn't always my best first strategy. Maybe I should step back a little bit and look around and ask more questions and kind of see how other people are looking at it. The times that I've had some bad experiences is when I thought I was the answer. <laughs> and I found out I wasn't. <laughs> I think humility is what I think I've learned and trying to be just a lot more sensitive and be a better listener ask a lot of questions, just not think I have all the answers. So. You sound like a philosopher, Rudy. <laughs> oh, no, hey, actually, I, I probably could use some more humility. I probably could spend a little bit more time thinking before trying to act and fix the problem. You nailed it. I do want to solve not just my own quote unquote problems, but mm -hmm. anybody's problem that I see occurring or anybody asks me for help. But yeah, no, I for sure need to probably spend some more time maybe digesting things and maybe just have time itself work its way into solving some of those problems. But it's always like, it's always like this fine balance. I, I think Phil, like maybe the answer sometimes is not acting and just seeing how things play out. Sometimes maybe it is acting and stopping a problem. It's so hard to know what the right answer is. I think just that just comes with gut feelings or experience, et cetera, et cetera. You know, trying to think positive, although recognizing that things could go worse or there could be some negative 
negatives. So, you know, how do you try to stem the tide or try to put some things under back onto the right path? It's personal to everybody. No, there is no one size fit all, I think, when you're right. dealing with stuff. Yeah. I love this section toward the end. It's chapter 25 that's on leadership. And you have you open up with a quote that is from an officer's manual. And I'll just read a couple lines, but I won't read the whole thing. He should know every man of his company by name and character. He should often visit those who are sick, speak tenderly to them, see that the public provision, whether of medicine or diet, is duly administered, and procure them besides such comforts and conveniences as are in his power. So this is part of what it means to be a leader. Yes. And then you say, this is from the Revolutionary War. Yes. This is George Washington's advice. And what I love here is that, you know, as you're writing, you are talking about types of leadership, servant leadership, inspirational leadership, emotional leadership, transformational leadership. And then you're talking about the character. You say, in addition to passion, our founding fathers possessed qualities of honor, integrity, and self-sacrifice in measures rarely seen these days. I suspect as I was reading this chapter that this is part of the purpose of your publication of Uncle Dave. This is not just about a statistic. This is not just Mm -hmm. a history book. It's not only about Uncle Dave. It's about what Uncle Dave, it's about Mm -hmm. Uncle Dave as well as what he represents. Maybe if you could explore a little bit more about your intention with adding this part about leadership. Why do you not see it in today's society or something that is so rare? Well, first of all, I'm a student of leadership. My doctorate is in organizational leadership and I've studied it a lot. So as I was learning about the paratroopers and how what they went through, the leadership that was techniques that were created for the paratroopers and realized that has morphed into a lot of modern leadership training and theory. I wanted to include that. So for example, example, getting back to your, when you were reading about what I said about the honor and stuff and dedication of the founding fathers in the re- or the, those that fought in the Revolutionary War, you know, they left their homes and they went and they joined up, you know, with Washington Revolutionary Army, you know, 1% maybe did. And they fought terrible circumstances, Valley Forge in the winter and all that. Fast forward to World War II, you're saying to a young 18 or 19 or 20 year old, okay, we want you to jump out of a plane in the middle of the night to God knows where. You don't know what you're going to find if you make it alive to the ground. You don't know who you're going to be with, what weapons you're going to have. You're going to have to organize, and then you're going to have to try to achieve a mission. That's if you can even figure out where you are. And yeah, how would you like to do that for us? (laughs) 18 years old. I mean, that's like our freshman at Cal Poly, you know, who um, it's just, Mm -hmm. it's amazing. So they have to develop, no matter who they are, they have to develop leadership skills and character and be passionate because what happens is this is what the training showed. The person that invented all this was, his name is General Gavin. He invented how to work paratroopers. He and his men. My uncle was part of the group of non-commissioned officers that practiced the things they were experimenting with, how to jump with their weapons, what to jump with, what not to jump with, how to make it work. Here's the thing. It's not like you're in an office or even if you're in the infantry where you're following the your whoever your commanding officer is and they're telling you what to do and you know what and all that but when you jump out of a plane you're on your own this is the perfect example of decentralized management mm-hmm. because you're trained on how to use all the weapons not just the ones that are you know your major ones you're taught how to use the enemy's weapons because you may end up having to grab their weapons to use them you're taught how to lead each other if you have to take 
over from somebody how to lead them. So you're cross-trained and you formed bonds with these people because the main reason that these guys fought was to fight for each other. That was their primary thing. They, they wanted to win the war, but they were really fighting for each other by that point in time. So this is a, the emotional leadership, transformational leadership, servant leadership. They're all almost different names for the same thing. But it's the idea is what's important is the group, group success and uh, rewards are for the group. It's not an individual thing. You know, my award, what I'm doing is more important than what you're doing. It's what we are doing together. And so the paratroopers had to embody that. And so that has found its way through the military and into uh, the public general leadership theory. So I had to put it in there once I learned more about it. You know, that Simon Sinek, you may know who he is right now. He's a huge author and I really like him. He wrote the book, Leaders Eat Last. That's pretty much the same point. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. The difference between a leader and a boss, it almost sounds like leaders eat last, the boss probably is <laughs> like, yeah. that's what I'm starting to think. I mean, I love it because it is showing us what we can learn just in our everyday lives and appreciation and from these stories. It's just so, mm -hmm. you're, I think what you're doing here in this book is you're really showing us the significance and the importance of visiting this part of history. Yeah. That we're, yeah, that, I mean, we still have a lot to learn. Like you said, we could still learn about leadership, emotional mm -hmm. leadership, that that is a strength. And I just think it's a really, really incredible work. You write here that you are now looking at the holidays that celebrate veterans differently. I just wanted to ask, tease that out a little bit. How? Is there a particular thing that you do to celebrate or remember what goes through your mind? What is different for you exactly? Well, that's a good question. Thank you. Um, and I hadn't really pondered it specifically. When I wrote that book, I had younger readers in mind, as well as, you know, World War II history books. I wanted something that a high school could use as a unit study. And I've even created the unit study. I felt that we aren't practicing or honoring these holidays like we used to. When I was a kid, there were 4th of July picnics everywhere. It was a big deal. You hardly see that now. People don't know what some of these holidays even are, what they mean. And so I wanted to put that in the book. You know, I even have Pearl Harbor Day in there. A lot of people don't know what that is. Um, I just wanted to try and help remember those things, memorialize a little more. And part of it is, that, and I'm not alone on this, I don't think you can really understand the history of our country or the world for the last hundred years if you don't understand World War II, what caused it, what it was like, and the aftermath in so many ways. I'm trying to make these events have a little more importance than just the day you stick the flag out on your porch. Right. I don't know if I answered your question, but that's kind of what I was thinking. No, that's, I, I love it. Rudy, when you're like a bit of a history buff, is World War II at all in your wheelhouse? Yeah. In fact, when I became a history buff, it was because of my initial obsession with World War II. Excuse me, this is probably ridiculous to say, but um, I think literally every family on the face of the earth can trace where mm -hmm. their current yes. situation is or where they immigrated to, the layout of the United States, the not necessarily the United States, I'm sorry, but actually the layout of certain countries. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, yes. my family's from the Middle East. I mean, if you want to talk about, you know, impact uh, the World War II had, it had a profound impact on World War II. Not that there were a lot of battles in the Middle no. East per se, 
say, but you know, what resulted after World War II. Prior to World War II, there was the mandate system, which went into place after World War One. And and you know, you had the crumbling of the mandate system, and then all of a sudden overnight you had these countries kind of made up. You mentioned the Middle Eastern wars. We're still seeing the remnants of the impact of both World War One and World War Two in the Middle East today. I can't just separate World War Two from any part of my life because it was a result of that that yeah. we wound up um, in all the different places that we were. I mean, I've got family in all the countries throughout the entire world as a result of World War II and other reasons. I mean, I'm a history buff because I care a lot about my family history. A lot of that starts with World War One, right? And you really can't separate World War One from World War II. I mean, the reality is World yeah. War II was continuation of the of a lot of the problems that occurred yeah. of World War One, and and so you know, hearing these types of stories about soldiers being missing in action is something that I've, I've always wondered about my entire life. In the fact. And, and when you put into words grieving without knowing or the unknowing grieving, uh, Phil, I, I forgot you, you said it much more eloquently than me. It made a lot of sense to me. And I, and I can't uh, wrap my head around what that's like for parents um, and brothers and sisters. Knock on wood, I never have to experience that. But if I do, now there's some source material out there that I can look to to help me go through something like that. Or if somebody has to go through that, you can, you know, having some resources for something that it's great that you wrote this book. And I'm sure there's many people that are going to thank you for it. Thank you. I'm pleased that I've had very favorable responses, good reviews. And, and uh, that, that is there it. something that stuck out to you? Now I'm curious with the, with the responses, is there a review or somebody who said something about your book that hit you in a different way or really? I would say the number one most frequent thing I hear, and I'm, I'm very happy to hear it, is that from reading the letters, the 46, 49 letters that are in the book that I was able to gather, which is remarkable. My uncle was a very lovely writer, self-deprecating, interesting, connected to his siblings. And so these letters are and a lot of interesting paratrooper stuff. But the biggest comment I've gotten, the most frequent one is, they said, I felt like I got to know Uncle Dave. And even some people said, now he's my Uncle Dave. Mm. That meant a lot to me, that they felt like that, that they got to know him. One interesting coincidence is I was watching a seminar by a fiction writer. As an author, I've been a new author. I've been trying to learn. And I was watching this thing in a fiction writer. And the fiction writer said that you have to get your reader at the early part of the book, interested in liking your character, because that's their motivation to read the rest of the book. That never dawned on me. And then I said, I think I got lucky. I put these letters at the front of the book mm -hmm. and the stories of my uncle's family and get the reader to like him and be interested in the family. Then they want to find out what happened to him. So they read the rest of the book. And young people can see that there's a way to communicate without using emojis. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that there is something. Rudy, that's uh, very necessary. That made Rudy that, sit that, up right away. Most, <laughs> most important thing, if we can teach people not to communicate that way, it'd be very, very important. I know. Yeah. Whenever my students are like, what are these long sentences? Why, what does it matter? And, and now, like, looking at your book, you can see. Yes, you don't have to be a scholar, but just the basic structure of writing a letter, what you're leaving behind is a piece of you. This is part yeah. of, this is the way that Dave, Uncle Dave lives on, is through this. So you don't want an emoji to be, you will never live on with emojis, but it's mm -hmm. absolutely beautiful. 
thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for writing this book. Thank you for being on the pod. It's been an absolute lovely conversation. I mean, getting a chance to talk about the origin of this to even talking about faith and then what we can learn from this. It's just uh, been a beautiful conversation and I appreciate you so much and congratulations on the book. Oh, thank you. Congratulations. Huge accomplishment. Really. It's a, it's a really big deal. <laughs> My pleasure. I, I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for allowing me to be on your podcast. Thank you, Phil. Good is in the details is produced by Dr. Gwendolyn Dolsky and Rudy Salo. If you have any questions or if you'd like to advertise with us, you can get in touch. Good is in the details pod at gmail.com. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and you're enjoying the show, scroll down to the bottom and hit that five star review. If you'd like extra content and you want to support the show, check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash good is in the details. We have lots more coming up in season three. Oh, I can't wait to share it with you. Until next time. Bye.